page 1,210 of the Bibles on the chairs. And we're going through to verse 28. <clears throat> but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that we are now all that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Reeling at this point after that reading. <laughs> There's so much in it. We're going to try and unpack it. Um, just to, to realistically understand, we're, we're in the, the, the depths. We've come through the shallows into the depths of Jewishness in these chapters. And uh, the ideas that we're, we're uh, talking about, the writer's talking about here, are ideas that his congregation would have known wonderfully and clearly, but... We work hard at trying to understand what it's all about. 
What we do want to get hold of today is what changes God has brought through bringing, us, bringing his people from the old covenant into the new. That's our, that's our aim for today. Let's pray. Lord, please open our hearts and our minds to your word as we uh, talk about it today. We thank you for this writer who, was, um, who so loved his people that he used your word with great talent and great uh, effectiveness to show them what you have given them and what they would give up if they were ever to turn back. We just pray that you would lay upon our hearts the truths that you share with us in this pa these passages today, for Jesus' sake. Amen. But the other thing is, if you've got your Bible open, that's going to be really helpful, because uh, we've got two chapters here, um, and if you didn't bring a packed lunch, I'm sorry, you're going to be very hungry by the time we finish. Not quite. You know what it's like, you've been out in the garden working hard or you've been teaching or you just got back from work or you, you've just had some a time with the kids and you're going to sit down, you put the jug on, you're going to sit down and you thought, let's pop the telly on or you put the radio on and over the radio uh, comes all the advertising. Um, when we hear the advertising or see the advertising, they're always sale items that are they're the newest and the best. Come and see our new presentation, our new item. This has got better speeds. This has got um, more bits and pieces around it. It's better designed, better produced, newer and better. Buy this one. This is the best one. The usual sort of thing. And that's fine because often it's very attractive and you think, oh, that would actually help me in this area or that area. And then it dawns on you that this is the best one today. There's going to be a new best one next week. And then another new best one the week after. That's the nature of advertising, isn't it? Try and get us to buy what, what they have now um, and then they won't buy the one by the opposing group the following week. What the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying is that is not true when we come to what God prevents, presents for us to share. Um, Hebrews 8 and 9 presents life under the new covenant as forever better than life under the old covenant. There is not a shred of doubt in the writer's mind that these people now under God through Jesus have the very best. And he wants to make, make them uh, very clear on that. And so sharing, knowing that we share in these incredible blessings of the new covenant becomes a really powerful reason for us to rejoice, firstly, Wow, what, what has God enabled us to share in together and also to give thanks that he's placed us in this uh, such a, a wonderful place as he has through the Lord Jesus. But there's a process been going on, of course, to bring us here. And that's what we're going to try and appreciate this morning. Um, we need to consider why the new is better than the old. Why is the new better than the old when people lived under the new for such a long time? and seem to deal with God. Well, here's a little summary. I'll put this together, um, and it's really to try and help us get hold of the, the differences. We know the Old Testament and the New Testament are equally the word of God, and as such, they're of fundamental importance in declaring God's word to us. So if you're one of those folk who, who loves the New Testament but doesn't tend to dip into the old, can I encourage you, dip in. 
Um, it's nice and warm. <laughs> you enjoy paddling uh, around in the Old Testament. Uh, there's so much there to say, so much to come out of and say, oh, that, that's, that is something I'd, I'd actually like to memorise. It's so good. Um, the old, the new, equally the word of God. In the personal ministry of Jesus, the temporariness of the Old Testament uh, gets replaced by the permanence of the new. It's temporary to new. The, the shadowy nature of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, becomes a clear reality in the new. The promises that are constantly being made and pointing to, to the future in the Old Testament, they become completely and permanently fulfilled in the new. And I noticed again today that I'd missed actually in, in preparing this that the writer talks about the old being a copy of the new. And in some cases, you can't get away with a copy, illegal, the legal area, you've got to have the original, haven't you? How do you, how do you understand this? Well, there are a variety of ways. Um, I drove down the M2 this morning and uh, the fog fell in over the M2 and so I'm driving along and you see about you know, 20 feet in front of you. You can sort of see shapes and colours and things, but you can't... It wasn't until the sun came out, burnt, burnt the fog away, and here's this... I could actually see where I was driving. It was much more pleasant in that situation. That's what happens when you come from the old into the new. The, the fog clears. How else could you look at it? Well, I don't know if you remember, but when we looked at Hebrews 1, which is quite a long time ago now, we talked about the difference being in terms of uh, a beautiful bud, flower bud, and a flower that actually is fully open in all its glorious array. There's everything in the bud that is going to become the flower, but it just hasn't opened uh, in all its uh, glory yet. And maybe that's a helpful way of understanding the Old Testament. Um, I was looking also at the interactive Bible study on Hebrews, and I noticed they had quite a good explanation too. So I, I'll just read this one out. It's a comparison between the typewriter and the computer. And this is what they have to say. Within quite a short time after the arrival of the computer, the typewriter was history. And for a very obvious reason, the PC was simply superior. The new technology made the old one obsolete. And no one would buy a typewriter today unless they were an antique dealer. Or maybe you're doing it out on telly like the one that maybe you've seen. Nevertheless, there is some connection. There is some similarity between the typewriter and the PC. They both have the same aim. They want to produce typed documents. They have the same basic keyboard with letters and numbers arranged in the same configuration. In fact, we might even say that the typewriter embodied the very function and pattern of a writing machine. It's just that the PC does a far superior job. It's just that the New Covenant is in so many ways superior to the old. As uh, the scriptures say, a superior reality. That's what we have in the new. But when we say superior realities, what does that mean? And to work that out, we're gonna, we have to dip into Hebrews 8 and 9. So will you open it with me if you haven't already? And um, get, your, get your sandwich out and your cuppa. 
and we'll have a look. What are the superior realities of the new covenant ministry? Well, the first one's in chapter 8, verse 1 to 6. Because in the new covenant, we have a new mediator with a more effective, a much more effective ministry. Jesus, of course. The Old Testament priestly ministry and the sacrifices they used to give, they, they were successful in taking away the sins of the people, um, but only successful because God set the whole thing up. He told them how to do it, how, how to arrange it, and he accepted that arrangement as a temporary measure. It was always going to be temporary. It wasn't going to be a permanent arrangement at all, um, but it worked. It worked because God said, I'll accept it. I'll accept it the way it is. You trust me and I'll accept this. Um, each Levitical priest's role was to offer gifts and sacrifices. Uh, as that's the explanation given in 8 verse 3. And they do it as a figure who mediated between people and God. So they stood in between and they brought God and people together. And it worked because God accepted that arrangement. And, um, uh, but it meant that because... They were human. They had to get replaced on a regular basis because uh, this priest got older and older and older and then died. So you needed a new priest. And there was this system whereby you kept on having to replace your priests. And not only replacing your priests, you had to actually offer sacrifices again and again and again, actually on a daily basis. There were so many sacrifices, um, if you put your sandwich down at this point, that um, we're told that uh, from the altar where the, um, or the sections where the animals were, were killed and uh, the blood flowed, uh, there was a, like a channel that channeled the blood away from the area. There was so much blood that flowed in the sacrifices that it was channeled away. Blood was an incredibly significant and central part of what happened with these sacrifices. And they had to do it again and again day after day. That covered the, the sinfulness of the priest first and then the sinfulness of the people. But in comparison, if we were to go back to chapter 7, which we decided not to sort of deal with in the series this time, um, these are the comments that are made about Jesus' ministry. Chapter 7, verse 11. There's a question. If perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to appear? In other words, if that had been good enough we wouldn't have had to have something else. That's in chapter 7, verse 11. Verse 18 says, So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Um, and then it goes on to say, So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. And... Um, Verse 26 says, For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And we say, well, then we've got a problem. <laughs> because no human priest could possibly qualify. But see chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest. We have this kind of high priest. Chapter 8, verse 6 says, But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry 
and to that degree he is a mediator of a better covenant which has been legally enacted on better promises. Better ministry, a better mediator, a better covenant, better promises. It's all better. Well, let's have a look at the promises. And we're looking at chapters, uh, chapter 8, verse 7 to 13. Better promises bring a better outcome. Um, they're pictured in the quote from Jeremiah. It's chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. And it's, um, it's a highlight point of the scriptures when we're talking about the, the development of the new covenant. It's a complete and utter change. Um, we'll see that hopefully as we, as we get along. Now, the, the reason this is quoted here is because it gets to the very heart of the issue for why we need sacrifices and priests in the first place. It's a problem between us and God. It's a heart problem. It's, it's, the, it's, it's why we, without Jesus, are kept apart. The old covenant was a two-party agreement. God agreed to do this. His people agreed to do this. And the reason the Old Testament failed was because, not because God didn't keep his side of the bargain, but because his people didn't. They started, do you remember, they said, all that God has said, we will do. But in actual fact, very quickly, uh, they failed to do it. And so the new covenant we enjoy is now totally God's work. It's not a two-party agreement. It's a covenant of grace. God has set it up and then he has said, come and share it with me. And the key factor is his initiative. He says, um, I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. Under the old covenant, yes, okay, there was a sacrifice for your sin. But the question of guilt was always hovering. Am I really forgiven properly? Uh, this was probably this was um, particularly for those sins which you um, did, you know, not deliberately. But if you sinned deliberately, that was another factor. Um, and so there's always this question of guilt hovering over um, what the priests did. Yes, God accepted uh, and forgave you, but there was always this lingering thought. But now. What he does is he writes his law in our hearts. He draws us to himself in personal relationship and he is totally dealt with and removed our guilt. Now I just want to stop there at a moment because I think a lot of us have got a problem here. We can accept that Christ forgives us but sometimes we don't let the guilt go. Isn't that true? Our whole community is lumbered with guilt. And they, don't want to, they don't want to deal it from a Christian, with it from a Christian perspective. They go looking elsewhere. So they spend hundreds and thousands of dollars on psychologists to deal with an issue that Christ says, I know the answer to that. And when Christ gave himself on the cross, he not only took our sin, but he took all the guilt associated with it. There's a wonderful Old Testament verse that says... God has placed our sin and guilt as far away as the east is from the west. Do you know that verse? Now, can you get any further away? <laughs> the answer is no, you can't. The east and the west are extreme ends on either side. And that's the whole point, of course. 
If you don't take, don't take anything else away from the sermon this morning, take this away. When God forgave you through the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he took away your guilt. And he no longer accounts that to you. Do remember that. So that's the effective way in which Christ has dealt with the question of sin and guilt. And it doesn't fail because God has written it on our hearts and he makes sure it happens. So he's drawn us to him in personal relationship and dealt with all of that. And it's all accomplished in Jesus, our Messiah and our Saviour. And that's totally changed the game. And that's totally given us fresh grounds for a confident hope. If a God will do that for us, if Jesus will do everything necessary to achieve that for us, it obviously loves us, it obviously is on our side, it's obviously that he's including us in his plans for the future. We have a confident hope. Well, we might say, okay, comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it just, of course, we're running over the top of these two chapters because there's so much in them, but comparing the Old and the New, where's the forward progress? Well, here's just a couple of things that the writer presents us with. We now have greater access into God's presence. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. There's a picture there of the Old Testament tabernacle. If you've, you've probably seen pictures of it, it was basically a, a tent that was carried around as they went through the, the uh, desert. And uh, it was, there, were two, there was a series of curtains, so you had t- um, an outside... Inside you had a sort of an open area, then you had a, a one room, which was the, the holies, holy room, and then you had uh, the second room, which is the holy of holies, and the priests could go into the, um, the, the place of holies, the holy area, the holy place, but they couldn't go into the holy of holies. In fact, if they did, they'd be put to death, except for once a year. And it was a highlight of a priest's career that he was chosen to go into that holy of holies one day uh, of his entire career one priest could enter it once a year and only after intricate preparations sacrifices for himself sacrifices for the people and the inadequacies of that arrangement although it worked because God said Let's, this will work we'll, we'll make this work Its inadequacies lay in the fact that it was built by humans, it was run by humans as part of a physical world. And as the scripture says, it was a copy of something much better. And although God had given them the design, it was still a limited physical representation of his presence. It wasn't the real deal. So you can see the writer's comment in chapter 9, verse verse 8. He says... The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. But that was all what the tabernacle was all about. It was to represent the presence of God amongst them. But the writer is saying the way into the most holy place, into the presence of God, had not yet been revealed. Um, There was something better to come. Chapter 9, verse 11 to 12, he says, The true tabernacle is heaven itself because that's where God is. That's where God is. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come, 
in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So under the new covenant, our high priest is Jesus. And yes, he is fully human, except for the fact that he is perfect, sinless. So he can he's the only one who can stand and represent us before God as one of us. But also he's fully God. He's fully the son of God. So it's only because he can only do what he does because of who he is. But because of who he is, he can do it completely and perfectly. So he's our high priest. He leads us into the presence of God now. And he prepares a place for us in heaven to delight in being with him forever. And meanwhile, the writer goes on to say, he is seated at God's right hand and he speaks to God on our behalf. See, we have much more wonderful and easier and bolder and grander access into the presence of God now that Jesus has done what he's done. We live in the new covenant. And he did that because his sacrifice of himself once and for all was by far a greater sacrifice than all those that the priests did day by day by day. Chapter 9, verse 26. When Jesus, uh, but, by, but now Jesus has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or verse 13. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Takes away our guilt, cleanses our consciences so that we can come before God. And verse 15 makes it clear, I don't know whether you've thought much about this before, but it makes clear that when Jesus died on that cross, he saved not only those in that present time and in the future, like ourselves, but he saved all those who had lived and trusted God from the time of the creation. So that his work on the cross was retrospective to the beginning of creation. So that Abraham was saved by faith because of Jesus' death on the cross. And the same was true of every Old Testament um, faithful person of God. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? One sacrifice performed once, effective and sufficient to open heaven up to us. That's what Jesus offered, a better sacrifice. I just wanted to finish on one other thing. I think I, it's a bit of an educated guess, but I think, I think there's good grounds for saying it. And it's based on those last couple of verses of chapter 9. Just as people are designed to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sin of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's a, there's a theme that rings all the way through from the beginning of the scriptures, through the prophets and on into Revelation 21, 
And it goes like this. I will be their God. They will be my people. Um, it's, it's a remind, we are reminded of it again and again. It's a fundamental covenant promise. Abraham got promised at first and then up to our times. And in Revelation 21, of course, we get the fulfilled picture of the new heaven and the new earth, the end point uh, of um, human history. And we know it's true because we can see people becoming Christians in our community friends of yours, family of yours. Jesus is building his community and strengthening that community day by day as he builds his church. For the Old Testament community, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies that one day of the year, they pinned an awful lot of their hopes on him. They, they, they were praying that by going in there and offering the sacrifices... When he came out, they would then be assured that their sins had been forgiven and their relationship with God was on a very strong and good basis. So when he came out um, successfully at the end of the process, um, it was a wonderful time of rejoicing and thanksgiving. And I think the writer has a picture here for you and I in our time, or down the future perhaps, um, when Jesus returns, he's saying to us, you think the Old Testament people had great reason for joy, being joyful and, and giving thanks. How much more reason will you have when we see Jesus returning from the heavenly tabernacle, from heaven, from the presence of God, to meet with and gather his people to take them to be with him for the rest of time. Do you see the point? I think it's there. You read it, see for yourself. But I think it's there. I think, I think it's a wonderful uh, reality of the new covenant as it talks about the community which we share uh, with our great God. So, the new covenant under which we are bound to God through Jesus is therefore better in every way. And he wanted this little congregation to make sure they knew that so they didn't start stepping backwards. God has given us the best at every level. Do you doubt that? Now have a read through this again. He's given us the best. The best saviour has brought complete forgiveness for our sin, total removal of our guilt. The best mediator actively speaks to his father on our behalf. And what is our response? Joy, thanksgiving, and a day-by-day -day fresh commitment to a God who would do that for us. I think uh, chapter 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's absolutely true and a good point on which to finish this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're just so thankful that you are a God who promises and keeps your promises your people in the past have, have benefited from that as we do now and we look in the future to that great and final um, fulfilment uh, with great joy and thanksgiving. Amen.